Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. <clears throat> and you find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, but it could be any time in your part of the world. And you can always catch all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. So last week I was talking about archetypal movies. I wanted to continue <clears throat> with that thought. I teach a variant. I teach in an art, architecture, and design school, and I have really great kids. You know, they, uh, <laughs> years ago, one of my colleagues from another school, another field, uh, we were, you know, on vacation, and he was talking, and, I, and I, he said, he said, I say to my students, so why are you taking this course? <laughs> said, well, soccer meets on Thursday. Uh, we have to take a sociology course. This was the only one on a Wednesday. Uh, I don't have that problem. My kids know they want to be architects. And <clears throat> I'm also fortunate to teach interdisciplinary courses. So... Uh, these uh, kids know they want to be in advertising design or painters or whatever. And um, even if, you know, they might be realistic enough to know they're not going to make a living as a painter. Some will, but, you know, a lot won't. And <clears throat> they, um, you know, they are engaged with the world. One of the things I love about the education in my school is it's a studio school. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I've taught studio over the years, not recently. But uh, imagine the following studio. Uh, let's say you're in architecture. You might be in industrial design. But <clears throat> studio meets um, Monday and Thursday from 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock, eight hours a week. And there might be um, depending upon the department, there might be eight or ten students there. So, the, you know, average-wise, <laughs> you're an hour a week, one-on-one. -on -one. You know, there's a, and when the teacher's not standing over your desk dealing with your project, you're watching them deal with another student, and inter and so it's the, the and you're making stuff, you know, <laughs> whether it's. Uh, wine labels or a library or um, <coughs> stationery, depending upon, again, what department you're in, or uh, motorcycles <laughs> in industrial design. And then uh, think about how that engages you with the culture so that, let's say we're doing a library in, in an architectural design studio. What is a library? Well, it's a place for books. Well, <laughs> what's the role of books in our culture today? I'll talk more about that in a minute. And what are the alternatives, you know? And, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we used to get in books is online. Well, <clears throat> okay. If 
you can get it online. We have terminals in the library. But why go to the library, sit in front of a terminal? You've got one on your lap all the time. Particularly, I mean, all students have laptops. But our students are pretty facile because they're using, you know, high-power high power design softwares to uh, uh, to do their to do their projects. So they're, you know, they're comfortable with this stuff. And of course, school is putting more and more stuff online. <laughs> My students are sending me their, even, you know, I, I'd rather have it on paper. I'm that old fashioned. But they're emailing me their, their projects. And then they send me this stuff on Google Docs. <laughs> I don't know how to use Google Docs. And and then my school started set up an LMS learning management system, so I'm I I got a grip on that. You know I I post all my um, all the powerpoints on my lectures in each week on the LMS, and I post my course outlines and um, uh, all that stuff. And then I try to uh, usually record my lectures. And you can find them all. Uh, go to YouTube. Go to John Lobel. Uh, you'll find my channel. And then uh, click on Playlists. And then you'll find uh, – there's over 100 of them. So it's better to go to Playlists where they're reasonably sorted. And <clears throat> from there, you'll find Technology, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, Non-Western Architecture, Art and Architecture, very various topics. Don't pick on – Click on the image. Click on the title where it says, you know, like Frank Lloyd Wright. You click on the image, it starts playing all of them. But if you click on um, where it says Frank Lloyd Wright or technology, and then it took me forever to figure this out. One more time, on the upper right will be several of them. Click again on technology, and then you'll see all the, you know, dozen or so lectures on that topic I put in that playlist. Well, this is nifty software, and it records uh, what's coming through the mic in the computer, my voice, and the air conditioner in the background, and and what my PowerPoint, whatever's on the screen. And interestingly, once in a while, I'll play some music for some purpose, and uh, YouTube takes that down. <laughs> no, you know, uh, so when I do put music, I make sure I go get a... Uh, Copyright-free source. Anyway, so where's my digression coming from? So in studio, we're doing, let's say, a library. And then, well, what are books? What's a library? And then, you know, we're going to build it out of something. How does it relate to its community? How does it relate to current transportation? What what happens in a library if, you know, it's pretty dumb sitting in front of a terminal if you've got the, you can do that from home. And if just to make you do that, the libraries have subscriptions to some high-power databases, stuff that's not on Google, uh, that you can only get from the library terminal, you know, because your home computer's not, we're paying for a high license fee. So I don't understand all that. You know, I I was never very good in the library. Uh, I did a, a high-power High power master's thesis with oh, maybe about uh, five pages of footnotes, uh, five pages of bibliography. I'm sorry, dozens of pages of footnotes, 
And then I recently edited my late wife's book, which has about oh, dozens of pages of bibliography, hundreds of pages of footnotes. And neither of us used the library. <laughs> we used bookstores and then later Amazon. So that's just that's just me. But um, and then we're in this life. So what does should happen in a library? And then we're going to build it. We're gonna, if we build it out of bricks, is that a, a reference to its rootedness in the past? As Louis Kahn says, bricks built Rome. Or if we build it out of glass and steel, is this homage to modernism and Mies van der Rohe? If we build it out of composites, you know, uh, carbon fiber reinforced uh, epoxies, is that an homage to the future? We, you know, the very way we build our library is a statement about where we fit in the culture. So <clears throat> that's a real, you know, I'm I'm really uh, proud of uh, my school and the kind of education we offer. I'll see, <laughs> you know, a young student, could be a woman, uh, carrying a three-by-six piece of plywood, and she comes in the building, kicks the door open because she doesn't have any free hands, and then makes it up the, the elevator to the uh, to the shop, throws the plywood on a on a bed, plugs her her flash drive into the routing machine, and starts routing the base of her model. You know, and then later she's standing in front of a group of uh, faculty and prominent architects at the end of the semester presenting the project. I'd hire this person at a at a venture capital firm, you know. <laughs> uh, not, the, you know, it, it's, it's a, just a fantastic education. And the hands-on quality. Uh, we had this thing <clears throat> going on for a while. Uh, back in the old days, <laughs> in my time, Interestingly, I was in school just when press type came in. So, you know, my first year, we were lettering, uh, hand-making the titles to our, to our drawings. And by second or third year, you, we could buy this stuff and we, with, with all the typefaces on a plastic and you put it down and rub it. And it sticks the letters down and do the letters that way. And, of course, they're quite handsome. Of course, we don't do any of that now because it's all on the computer. But we could still draw. And there was something about the uh, architectural education that between the hand, the hand, the eye, and the mind, you know, that <clears throat> ideas weren't only in uh, – in the mind and writing, but they were also in what you drew. And we, uh, it was an elective, but I, well, I, I took life course, you know, we, drawing from a model. And so that you're really developing this, to use the BS cliche, hand-eye coordination, hand-eye um, uh, interaction of Activity, not just mental activity, but how ideas flow in and out of oneself, not just one's mind. So as the computer came in, 
this hand drawing started to get lost. And um, with it, uh, you know, the students could do anything with, you know, as the software became more sexy that the architects were using. There's a point where architects adopted Hollywood software so they could make weird shapes. And so there was a, a, a began to lose that quality of the hand. And then in our school and all the schools, the shops really started to become really important. So I was at a shop, and it was pretty much a wood shop, so students could make the base of their models, and the rest of the models would be made out of chipboard, cardboard, and an exacto knife or a mat knife. But the shop started to grow. Got more and more wood shop stuff. We now have a metal shop in our building. But then we got the 3D printers and the routers and the laser cutters and the various kinds of 3D printers. One of them deposits plastic. You're probably pretty familiar with that. There's a big spool of plastic. Well, it's exactly like your inkjet printer. So your inkjet printer puts down a layer of ink that exactly corresponds to what's on the screen of your computer, whether that's a page of type or a graphic, and uh, various colored inks, of course, if you have a color graphic. Well, a 3D printer, you have a 3D thing in your screen. It's in your computer, reduced to 3D, 2D on the screen. But it puts down a layer of plastic that's, say, a thousandth of an inch thick. And it does that a thousand times. You've got an inch. It does it 10,000 times. You've got 10-inch model of something. (laughs) Everybody's afraid. So people are going to be printing handguns, (laughs) which apparently goes on. But um, that's the least of it. So you can print, you know, little toys for your dollhouse or toy soldiers or, you know, exotic models. And, of course, you need the software for that thing. It can be you can design it yourself if you're capable of 3D design, or you can download it. There are websites filled with free downloads of software that will then uh, activate your 3D printer. And these things cost about $500, I guess. <laughs> In my school, we had a uh, one of my colleagues, one of my faculty colleagues, is a big advocate of these things. So he started he had his whole room full of 3D printers making 3D printers. <laughs> with the idea that eventually every student would have their own 3D printer and it would fold up into a briefcase and it could unfold it. So anyway, we have another 3D printer which has a uh, a big uh, a big vat of dust like talcum powder. And <clears throat> the thing will uh, deposit epoxy in that dust in a, the pattern of your the model that you're making. And then you reach in there and pull this thing out of it uh, that's now solid. And, of course, they can they have 3D printers that will print metal. <clears throat> you have little specks of metal which are deposited according to your model and then zapped with uh, lasers that melt it into what you're making. Anyway, what happened was uh, this hand-eye did not get lost. It got picked up instead of in drawing in model making. And the kids make these incredible models uh, using 
various components from the various shops. And so, uh, you know, if you're if you're a traditionalist, you're going to have complaints. Although <laughs> I have a perspective on traditionalism because when I got to school, it was only um, uh, eight years after the beginning of throwing out the Beaux-Arts people who were uh, – we were one of the last schools, uh, University of Pennsylvania, where I went, to switch from Beaux-Arts to modernism. And um, Harvard under Walter Gropius had done it in the 1930s. University of Pennsylvania did it in the 50s, uh, early 50s, 1951. It began the process. Well, you can imagine the uh, Beaux-Arts masters who they could and their students could uh, draw a Doric, Ionic, or Corinthian column, not only a column but the whole order, uh, to do a building like um, the... National Gallery, which is 1941, or by John Russell Pope. And Pope also did the Central Park entrance to the um, Museum of Natural History here in New York and also did the Jefferson Memorial. Well, they had to not only know Greek and Roman architecture, they had to be able to do it. (laughs) And then you look at uh, the people who replaced them, and they're doing boxes. <laughs> Where's the architecture? So you can see when, as we go through these revolutions, that each generation is going to say, they don't do it like we did in the old days. Anyway, that's a long digression about my great students. But I do have a complaint, which was where I wanted to kick off the show today. And that is, uh, I'll ask them, what's their culture? What are they into? What are they... Um, um, what do they surf on the web? Who who do they follow? What who are the interesting figures? You know, I'm a shall we say a '60s person, so I'm a very uh, McLuhan oriented, and <clears throat> so and say Susan Sontag, Robe Grier, um, Joseph Campbell. So these are the figures that uh, were still doing their work in the 60s. And I was following it in case of Susan Sontag. <clears throat> I would uh, keep an eye out for uh, the latest issue of New York Review of Books. And if she was on the cover, I'd grab it, had to read, you know, whatever she had written. And um, Rob Grier, he would be... Uh, Interviewed in um, interviewed in Evergreen Review, which is a publication of Grove Press, and we'd follow. Okay, Grove Press did a lot of erotica, but they also did some fantastic cutting edge. They were you know, they were bringing the French uh, the French intellectual writers to us, and before that, in the late fifties, Grove Press was before. Um, Shambhala and Snow Lion and all that, they were our source of Eastern thought. So, uh, you know, there's certain things I followed. And then something would come along like um, Carlos Castaneda. And everybody's into Carlos Castaneda. Everybody's reading the books. And they originally had a kind of underground presence. They they, They didn't come in through an intellectual vehicle, but rather mass market paperback. 
which is an interesting phenomena, you know, how ideas enter establishment culture. So, for example, if you were to say uh, electricity, uh, of course, Thomas Edison, number one, and immediately uh, Nikolai Tesla comes up, one of the most fabulous inventors, scientists, minds of the um, early, mid-20th century, a pioneer of uh, electricity, brought us alternating current. Edison was wrong about that. And then Tesla said, I want to be able to send information and electricity without wires. Can you do that? Well, yeah, information is called radio. (laughs) And uh, maybe uh, uh, Marconi got uh, some of the credit that Tesla should have gotten. And uh, we never really did manage with the... uh, with the electricity, but um, you know, people have been pursuing his have not been pursuing his ideas. Maybe there's something there. Well, in the '60s, when I wanted to follow Tesla, he was in mass paperbacks. You know, not serious literature, not academic presses. Now there's heavy-duty, serious uh, New York publishers are publishing. Uh, biographies and stuff like that, but not at the time. Well, same thing with Carlos Castaneda. Came into these mass paperbacks and then really took off. And for those of you who uh, (laughs) don't know what I'm talking about, so Carlos Castaneda was a student of anthropology who, for his doctoral thesis, goes off to Mexico and finds a yucky Indian shaman who initiates him, I mean real initiation, nasty, rough stuff, in to become a shaman. And he then writes a series of books. I mean, it's about six books. Um, And the material became respected by anthropologists. And the way Joseph Campbell put it is, I don't know if it's true, and most people think it's not. You know, who knows if if um, his shaman guide, trying to think of his name, um, what's his guide's name? Anyway, who knows if he was real or a composite, but uh, the way Campbell put it, he got all the material in shamanism correct, and maybe he was fictionalizing it to make it uh, dramatic. But <clears throat> there are these six books, and we'd pounce on them. You know, what's what's the next book? And then <clears throat> there's other material like that, Wizard of the Upper Amazon. And <clears throat> then if you went to uh, the um, New York Open Center, places like that, <clears throat> there would be people who had maybe been with uh, I think Wizard of the Upper Amazon is by someone who gets, um, a, maybe he gets lost or whatever and gets adopted by Amazonian Indians and initiated into shamanism. So this material starts becoming available. And then you can get shamanic training and people could go out west for sweat lodges and American Indian shamans and et cetera. So that's the kind of stuff uh, some of us were into. I had one student who— um, 
Well, I got very into Tibetan Buddhism. Talk about that in a minute. But Chungam Trungpa Rinpoche uh, was the first Tibetan to come to the West after the Chinese moved into Tibet. And he uh, first went to Oxford to master English at the level of poetry, as he put it, and then came and started setting up uh, study centers, which (laughs) ran into some very controversial (laughs) problems. But uh, his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, was fundamental to my thought, and uh, he he presented what he described as crazy wisdom. So and then so I had this student who was into this stuff, and he was more into Hinduism. But he would go off to India to meet with his guru, and this kid was Greek, uh, Greek descent, uh, and. So what 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 are my students into today? You know, I said, to, well, what when you go on the internet, what do you do? Well, you know, uh, mis, miscellaneous YouTubes. Uh, so they're not telling me anything. So that's one of my complaints. So I talked a couple of weeks ago about some of the thinkers who um, influenced me from. My, from school, and Oswald Spangler, Joseph Campbell, um, Frank Lloyd Wright, Marshall McLuhan. And then we get these, um, you know, and I go into what they mean to me, and I still find them foundational. I totally skipped the um, French structuralists. <laughs> I think to my benefit, they came and went. But uh, I have a colleague, John David Ebert, I've interviewed several times. We'll hear from him in the future. And he was annoyed by the uh, the French post-structuralists or post-modernists, uh, Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, Lacan. And he finally broke through. He read them and he figured them out. And he has a series of YouTubes uh, explaining them. So... If you want to know what Derrida is all about with uh, these other figures, he does a really great job of, uh, of uh, going through them page by page. He's now working his way through Spengler's Decline of the West, um, Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae, and Joseph Campbell's uh, Mass of God, Primitive Mythology. These are monster works, and <clears throat> good luck getting through Campbell. Uh, you know, he has easy-to-read stuff. Strongly recommend uh, Myths to Live By. It's short essays, which you can, you know, each one read in a um, reasonable amount of time. But then it goes to uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is difficult reading. I read it once. I'm struggling through it again. It's on audio. But then you get to Mass of God. Each one's like five to 700 pages filled with footnotes. Um, so Ebert's getting us through that. It's going to take forever. I mean, each one is about maybe 20 videos. He's just getting started, I think, on Campbell. But anyway, I strongly recommend Ebert. But I... I uh, 
skip through that material. And I'm very into technology today. David Deutsch, we've had on this show. Ray Kurzweil, Stephen Wolfram, we'll have him on shortly. Peter Diamandis. And uh, there's this whole new world now where I you just go to YouTube, you say David Deutsch, and then go to Menu and go to Filters. Uh, <laughs> and you can say, just show me what he's the, the, mo- the last month or whatever. Because once you've watched um, most of their stuff, uh, it gets repetitive. I mean, you know, where, are there any new Kurtz files? Yeah. Go to last month and see if there's anything new. So, again, David Deutsch, and he he's a good example of he, – he pioneered uh, quantum computing, which is breaking through now, starting to happen – and uh, technologically extremely tediously uh, difficult, but theoretically mind-blowing. And since the world is quantum, you know, at the subatomic level, all material acts quantumly. And then they said, well, no, um, you know, it it has no effect on biology because... It, quantum effects won't happen except in, you know, in the laboratory uh, at subatomic levels, in a laboratory at near zero conditions, because to stay in a superposition state where the electron is everywhere at once and hasn't decided where it's going to be yet, you can't keep it that way in wet biology. Well, it turns out you can. That's how birds navigate. You know, they just figured that out recently. That's how photosynthesis works. That's how we smell. Uh, that's how the nose works. So we're in the midst of this um, revolution. And how do we model that? You know, the uh, artificial intelligence types <laughs> believe that the computer can model our brain, our thinking, thought processes. Uh, the weather. Well, if all these things are quantum phenomena, where, for example, for some period of time, the particle can be everywhere at once and doesn't decide to anthropomorphize, which you're not supposed to do, where it's going to be until, you know, it uh, decoheres, uh, how, you can't model that in a quote-unquote, classical computer in which it's either off or on, in which the, um, the, uh, uh, the computer switch is either off or on. So anyway, David Deutsch is important for this, but then he gets philosophical. He did a book, The Fabric of Reality, and more recently a book, The Beginning of Infinity. So he's talked about those on the show. Go look us up on... Uh, the archive, and he de- he doesn't post that many interviews, but it's interesting when he does. And then Ray Kurzweil uh, is <laughs> the most important futurist of our time, in which he he takes seriously Moore's law. He says if we keep going, in uh, twenty years, one computer chip will have as much circuitry as the human brain, 
in 40 years one computer chip will have as much circuitry of all the brains of all the people who've ever lived. Now, what does this mean? Is it going to, therefore, be intelligent? That's a discussion. But, you know, it's got to have implications when your computer gets that powerful. And, you know, think of what we're walking around with our, in our pockets in our smartphones. Anyway, uh, so I follow these people, but more recently, something else has come up. And let's go back to the postmodernists. And we have, um, it would have happened anyway, even without Friedrich Nietzsche. But we have Friedrich Nietzsche's announcement uh, popularized long after his death in 1964 on the cover of Time magazine of uh, God is Dead. And what Nietzsche meant is we no longer believe in God, and by God he meant the biblical God. So what does that mean? Um, And I don't know how people ever took that seriously to begin with. I mean, great literature, some of it, but uh, this is how we, you know, there's this group of desert tribes in the Middle East and the entire world is supposed to model their moral and cultural systems on their ideas, which might have been appropriate for their world uh, a couple thousand years ago. But there are other systems of thought out there, like the Greeks, uh, the Hindus. This world is an illusion. And we should uh, put ourselves in touch with transcendent oneness, the Chinese, the Tao Te Ching, the Tao, the way of all things. We should put ourselves in harmony with the processes of all things, nature, but then also all things. And what does it mean to do that um, about who and what we are as human beings? So in my classes at school, I like to um, I like to uh, say to my students, "There's only one question. It's got two parts: uh, Who are we, and what are we doing here?" And the point is, uh, different cultures have not only come up with different answers in detail, but wholly different approaches about what the question means. So. Uh, One of the responses to Nietzsche was nihilism. There is nothing. There are no values. And part of that is the tabula rasa. The mind is a blank. And besides the the Enlightenment figures who insisted on tabula rasa, who was into tabula rasa? Give us a call. I don't think it's Rousseau. One of those guys, 888-874-874. Four eight eight eight. Anyway, I'm a big fan of the Enlightenment, but uh, <clears throat> they got the tabula rasa thing wrong. And one of the, I mean, it's so obvious that you know the way that, that people can have these kinds of, excuse me, wrong-headed <laughs> ideas is that they um, don't think about art. If you come from a background of art, literature, painting, sculpture, architecture, and um, the arts of all the world's cultures, not just the West, 
you see these patterns. And where do these patterns come from? They come from patterns in the human mind. It's not a tabula rasa. Well, <clears throat> interestingly, there's a um, figure, Steven Pinker, and he's a linguist, uh, psychology professor at Harvard. And he wrote a book, uh, I think it might be called Tabula Rasa. I didn't read it, but I've, uh, I know what it's about. And he demonstrates that the idea is just wrong. There are these patterns in human existence, in the human mind, uh, manifest in human culture. And, you know, if you took uh, psychology when I was in school, you got told there's only one human instinct, suckling. You know, the baby will go for the nipple. Other than that, it's tabula rasa. Well, it's just wrong. You know, there's this whole these patterns of human behavior which are reflected throughout all these cultures. So Stephen Pinker writes that book, and as a result, um, something else. So let's jump over another thing I wanted to talk about, which is dum dum dum, the intellectual dark web. So I I find you know more and more of these interesting figures interesting. So I'm um, printed out a list. Uh, Eric Weinstein, mathematician, and now he's a um, he's the head of Peter Thiel's investment fund. Um, he originated the term. Sam Harris, neuroscientist from Stanford who uh, has written books, very interesting books, attacking religion. How can people believe that stuff? You know, you read it and and you really should, you know, obey those commandments. And at the same time, I can't put him down as a uh, nihilist materialist because he knows a lot more about meditation than I do. I mean, he he goes on he goes on year long meditation retreats. <laughs> he seriously studied the mind, and through uh, serious meditation, which he tries to do outside of specifically cultural Buddhism, but just um, meditation as a technique in itself. Um, Jordan Peterson, big fan, clinical psychologist at Toronto University, who's now tearing up the web. Um, so he wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life, and it became a mega bestseller. And he's on an international book tour. And I don't know how his voice holds out. <laughs> I don't know how he uh, he doesn't get done in by, uh, by uh, jet lag. Uh, he's, you know, every day in a different country with an audience of a couple thousand people being interviewed or lecturing. But what I'm finding these figures have in common, oh, and it's not a lot in common. I mean, uh, some are on the left, some are on the right. Uh, um, some are somewhat religious. Some are uh, the most outspoken atheists of our time, uh, et cetera. But... Um, from my point of view, most of them are open-minded. 
Um, and actually what they have in common is they're attacked by the intellectual establishment. A lot of them cannot lecture on university campuses. There will be riots. And um, which is, uh, I don't want to get into this in too much depth, but not saying good things about universities, I got to say. But the quality I see is, for the most part, some of them share a notion of the archetypal. So what do you mean by archetypal? Well, that's what I want to talk about today, and we're almost done. <laughs> Got uh, about uh, 15 minutes to go here. But <clears throat> I uh, last week was talking about some archetypal approaches to movies and talked about... Um, talked about Phantom of the Opera, which is the ultimate archetypal movie. So if you go to my website, which I do with John David Ebert, cinemadiscourse.com. Now, um, a lot of my reviews are buried and they're hard to find, but there's a little, you know, search this website there. If you put Lobel there, all my reviews will come up and you can go through them, including uh, Phantom of the Opera. And what I said last week about Phantom of the Opera, the reason why <clears throat> the musical, theatrical musical and the movie, which is they're pretty much the same, are so popular, particularly the theatrical musical, is that it deals with the coming of age of a young woman. Now, a young woman coming of age has to negotiate two things. Number one, the men in her life, her father her bad boy lover and her good boy lover, and her career versus her family. And it's very easy for her to get those wrong. So we see, for example, Anna Karenina, in Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, she ends up committing suicide because she totally disastrously gets wrong the uh, good boy, bad boy uh, relationships in is it uh, William James Washington Square Park? Is that the the novel? There's a movie of it uh, where she is never able to leave her father. She screws up the relationship with the lover who will move her away from her father and out into the world. And then in a movie like um, The Red Shoes, she is not able to break away from her art and she is done in killed by her by her ballet slippers. Um, so those are uh, examples of it going wrong. And Christina, or is it Christine, in Phantom of the Opera gets it exactly right on every one of them. And you can see women taking their boyfriends to the movie saying, this is how you should treat me, <laughs> which is also why Titanic was so successful. Uh, it got a lot of repeat uh, repeat business because women would have to take every one of their current boyfriends to it to say, this is how you should treat me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's see if we've got time to do one. And I was thinking of Babette's Feast. And what you'll notice in my, um, if you go to Cinema Discourse, is <clears throat> I tend to be terribly... Um, 
terribly not up to date. <clears throat> so <laughs> Babette's Feast came out in 1987. I reviewed it in 2012, which is already now six years ago. But uh, you know, one of the things I do with my students is I'll mention a movie. A movie will come up like talking about culture. And I'll mention the scene in Blade Runner, the first Blade Runner, where uh, Natty, what's his name, the the android uh, played by Ruger Hauer, uh, as he's dying, releases a white dove, says time to die. And the dove is symbolic of, well, the androids don't have culture. They don't have an art. They don't have any place to leave their memories, what they've accumulated to pass on. And so when he dies, all of his fabulous is the things that you people wouldn't believe the things I've seen. Attack ships uh, on fire off the shoulder of Orion, you know, something at the Tannhauser gates and everybody's, what are those references to? They're just all made up. But... Um, um, so I'll mention a movie like that, and they haven't seen it. So my fantasy is there should be a list of 20 movies all the students at my school have to see. However, the faculty would never agree on those 20 movies. But one of them would be Babette's Feast for me. So I begin my review. As we await Cloud Atlas, let's look at a more modest spiritual movie from the past, Babette's Feast. So... I have a long introduction where I talk about the dualism of uh, is spirituality something that's transcendent and away from this world or of this world? And of course, in uh, Hinayana Buddhism, uh, it's available to those who can leave the world and become monks. And then the rest of us would aspire Maybe in some future incarnation, I will have time to be a monk. And in the meantime, I'll give to the begging bowl of uh, the monk who does have that opportunity in this lifetime. But then when we get to Mahayana Buddhism and the Bodhisattva path, the notion is that the um, everyday activities can be a spiritual discipline, you know, and Zen Buddhism is a Mahayana Buddhism. So washing the dishes can be your spiritual discipline. Your inner relationship with other people can be a spiritual discipline. We find that even in Catholicism. There was um, an administrator in my school, and uh, um, I discovered that he was a, he was a monk. He's in some in, 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 a, in a Catholic order in which you are in the world. Uh, you you act in the world. You don't go off to a monastery. And your activity in the world, your interactions with other people are your spiritual discipline in this Catholic uh, monastic discipline. So I uh, felt I could understand what he was doing because of its similarity to uh, Mahayana Buddhism that I'm a little bit familiar with. Um not a very good student. <laughs> a line from uh, that movie um, about that woman in the lawsuit about the contaminated water 
movies named after her. Geez, I'm terrible at remembering names, even the actress's name. Her picture's right in front of me. Anyway, so Babette is a great chef in Paris at the time of the French Revolution, when, of course, it would have been exceptional for a woman to have a role like that. But she was the, the mo- one of the most respected chefs in Paris. And she ends up on the wrong side of something, and uh, the revolution is after her as it's, you know, devouring its own, killing everybody, and she has to escape. And their friends of friends take her in, and they're on the— uh, a small seacoast town in Sweden, and they are an extremely aesthetic, austere uh, Protestant sect. Well, that's got a rough on her, being Catholic and being a chef. But she becomes their maid, these two sisters, whose father had been the leader of this sect and he had died. And they're all this old towns trying to keep this sect alive and through being aesthetic, not enjoying anything, you know, dressing in uh, scratchy clothes, going to the freezing cold church probably every day, not just every Sunday, uh, etc. Well, Babette is their maid, scout, you know, does their cooking, and, and she accepts her fate. One day she wins the lottery. What's she going to do? Well, she can get out of there. Uh, can't still can't go back to France, but well, maybe she could go somewhere a little less aesthetic. What she decides to do is cook them a meal, her kind of meal. And so you see these ships anchored offshore, bringing in the stuff she's ordered, bottles of wine, cages with birds for, uh, you know, cacovin, um, you know, just all this stuff, the, the stuff that she would have cooked with in Paris. And then she starts a couple weeks long process preparing this meal. And eventually everybody in the town sits down and she's serving the meal. She doesn't eat. She's, she's the server. Well, they're all fighting as hard as they can not to enjoy anything. <laughs> Fortunately, wonder of wonders, there is a an important Swedish general is visiting, and he joins them in the meal, and he is very sophisticated. He has been in Paris, and he says halfway through the meal, there's only one person who could have cooked this meal. So a chill goes up our spines, you know. Somebody's enjoying what she's done here, this great achievement, this great work, this great uh, artistic work, this meal. Well, the meal is over, and the general has to leave, and everybody is, uh, you know, going back to their aesthetic ways, and Babette is cleaning dishes, and they come to her and say, what will you do now? She says, I have to stay here. I spent uh, all my lottery winnings on this meal. So what was the point of the movie? And the point was, of course, we shouldn't say that, right? The movie is the movie. It's not my interpretation or anybody's interpretation of it. But one of the things it's saying is that there are 
two, at least two, ways to be spiritual uh, through asceticism and through the senses. And the senses can be a path to spiritual achievement, spiritual development, spiritual flowering, as can asceticism. And the movie, without judging, presents both. So that's the way I review uh, Babette's Feast, and I, um, I've got a bunch of other... Um, I begin the whole thing with the teachings I've encountered that have spoken this way. One of my favorites is a quote of uh, Joseph Campbell's from the Upanishads. Two birds... See if I can find it here. I just jumped away from it, but um, where are we? Um, no. Anyway, two birds on the uh, on the branch of the tree of life. One eating the fruit of the tree. The other not eating, just watches. And Campbell interprets that as. Um, one should engage in life. The two birds are one. They're both us. And it says like a tennis match. As one of the players in a tennis match, you fight fiercely to win. As the referee, you don't care who wins. Uh, you're a detached observer. And we should engage our lives that way. Both uh, fully engaged, uh, participating, seeking to win, and the other disengaged and um, not caring who wins, just observing. Well, maybe I'll uh, introduce what I'll talk about next time. Uh, one of the characters on this list of the intellectual dark web is Eric Weinstein. Eric Weinstein is a mathematician who is... Uh, Became involved in finance. He runs Peter Thiel's investment fund. Peter Thiel's one of the founders of Facebook. And very interesting guy. You got to read his book, Zero to One. But he's also become a social commentator. And there's a great interview of him, a couple of interviews you'll find online. And what he's talking about is um, is there a conspiracy? Are the intelligence agencies and social media and academia all conspiring, all putting forward a particular point of view? I think so. He thinks they, you know, he doesn't know. He asks, do they meet? Um, I think that, uh, that these things are sent by signals through the culture. And the thing that bothers me the most is the rejection of archetypalism, uh, the notion that there are these patterns in human mind, in human culture, and they're reflected in our culture. So that's what I was going to talk about today. <laughs> Didn't get to it, uh, or I indicated I, that's what I meant by the way I described um, Babette's Feast and last week and just mentioned today Phantom of the Opera. But let's talk more about that next time. And let's wrap up now. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. And catch our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com.